the Y curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. The Climate Conference COP28 promises of change, promises of money to save the planet. But is it really all just blah blah, as Greta Thunberg says, all environmental virtue signaling? Is the only way to make this stuff actually happen to make the economics work? Can we use the tools of capitalism to push everyone from petro states to Western consumers to do the right thing? Is there a way reducing carbon emissions can be good for our pockets as well as easing the pressure on global temperatures? The why curve. And that is the problem, isn't it? That, you know, can we actually arrive at a way that's going to be good for the planet without us actually feeling it in our pockets? Because I feel like we're going to have to make compromises and people don't want to do that because we're quite happy with our lifestyles. Thanks very much. Well, we are. But, but, but also there is this issue that in the end we are pushed by our banks and our investments and our insurance and our pensions and everything else in particular mm. directions. So if we can get big finance on this, if, if in a way it makes money and is good for our pocketbooks that we do things to help the environment and that he means it will actually happen yeah but that is only go- I, I think that only goes one way doesn't it so it's very easy to say well okay let's invest in renewables and uh, you know companies will invest in that because they know governments are going to be there to help subsidize it and support it and there's you know there's some deadlines that have to be achieved but if you're looking at you know other things that we have to compromise on so it's 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 okay for growth we've got an economy which is entirely based on growth But what about things that might not grow because of climate change, things that might actually be worse because of climate change? How do we handle that? You know, how do we stop investment in areas which could be bad for us, for example? Well, what we do is we make attractive investments in other areas. I mean, if you if the if the finance, I mean, the finance look at the long term. That's the thing, and we know that the problem is, you know, ten years, perhaps fifteen years away, the real, you know, moment at which it all becomes impossible. Uh, and and they look at that, whereas governments maybe don't so much. So perhaps if we can get them into that, then then it would work. Yeah, I'm very interested in this idea that finance looks at the long term in a in an environment well, where we look at the do. stock market every day and microsecond trading but also there's there's the question about how seriously we're taking it generally so i mean you know cop 28 are we up to now we've got Mm -hmm. rishi sunak the king david cameron all travel day independently on their own private jets i mean emirates flies there twice a day to london to dubai Mm -hmm. takes seven hours the same as it does by private jet Uh, and you can do it for i think first class maybe seven or eight thousand uh, pounds return whereas a Gulfstream g650 i saw for high i looked it up well, I thought might, maybe I'll do it. You know, everyone else is trying yeah. to work the environment. Well, we're and, making so much money out of this podcast. Exactly. £180,000 return it is versus, uh, you know, 7000 and And a private jet, 11 times more polluting than a commercial aircraft. So, I mean, it's a bit of a joke, mm. isn't it? That, you know, we're not taking this seriously but at all. But then the joke's there already because, yeah, he's being chaired by the whole thing. He's being presided over by the head of the, uh, of the UAE uh, or the Abu Dhabi um, petrol company. So yeah. it doesn't really make much sense. In those Two and a half thousand oh. people have registered for COP28 are representatives of coal, oil, and gas industries out of and yeah. 97,000 people going there. I mean, so let's call it what it is. It's a junket, isn't it? It is. And it also means that at the moment, people, the money talks and the money says, carry on drilling, carry on taking out oil and gas, uh, uh, and that's how you make your money. What we've got to do is get to the point of stopping that. Now, we have someone who knows a bit about this, not only about where the tipping points are, but some of the ways in which you might be able to manoeuvre things to make the money speak in the right way. Now, he's Julian Caldicott, director of Creatura, which is an environmental consultancy. He's also got a background in wildlife research and conservation in tropical rainforests, and he joins us now. So, uh, Julian, are we close to a tipping point now? Have we got to the stage where the planet has 
absorbed a lot of what we've been doing to it over the last century or so, and it's less capable of doing that now. Are we are we reaching a danger point? We certainly are. Uh, all the evidence suggests that there's been uh, well the accumulated heat stress and uh, ecosystem damage are sort of pushing a number of major Earth systems towards the likelihood of a sort of transitional, tipping into a, into a transitional chaos on the way to a different form of stability. And the problem is that these major Earth systems are kind of connected. So uh, the suspicion is that um, they will pull each other down over into, into, this, uh, into this chaotic period if we're not very careful. And so a lot of my work has recently has been focused on trying to figure out what kind of, what's the time scale on, on this and what's the, well, what's the likely time, li- likely best fit kind of time scale and what would it mean for our whole um, climate change mitigation strategy if we took that time scale seriously and kind of, wor- kind of worked out how, how we can avoid a, uh, a biosphere-wide tipping point. Exactly. That tipping point is, is clearly crucial and the point we're getting to and identifying where it is. But in terms of the mitigation you're talking about, someone looking at it now, looking at what's going being said at COP28 and the previous COPs would say there's a lot of fine words, but in terms of commitment to something to concretely mitigate in a way that will stop us reaching that tipping point, it's not clear that that has been reached or that that, that is achievable even. Well, achievability is, a, is another matter. I kind of try and keep as optimistic as I can. Um, my, my basic concern about the the whole I, um, the COP process, if you like, the UNFCCC process, is that it is it, especially in the media and and the kind of public uh, awareness, is sort of focused on a uh, this one point five degree global mean surface temperature threshold, to the exclusion more or less of all else, and uh, that that. Temperature threshold is is sort of uh, is very very indirect, if you sort of mean. Um, it's and it it doesn't kind of necessarily focus minds on um, on the right things. It's not looking at the the way in which the complex systems that we're that the heat being trapped on Earth by the greenhouse gas um, blanket is affect uh, are being affected by the rising temperature. Uh, all of this is a bit complicated because of or a bit hit, a bit. What's the word? Hard to um, clar- to keep clearly in mind because so much, such a large proportion of the heat that's trapped on Earth is going into the deep ocean and into melting ice rather than into increasing surface temperature. And it's those, it's that gradual, steady, massive increase in temperature within the oceanic biosphere uh, and its effect on the on the on the cryosphere, on the melting ice ice resources that that is sort of creeping up. On us, and is not in is not kind of measured by this one uh, by progress or, uh, towards a, a, a mean surface temperature threshold. So, the way I look at it um, is to say, well, what we should be doing is 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 focusing on on the uh, the tipping point probabilities themselves. Uh, look at the various major systems like the Amazon, the the Arctic, uh, and the uh, or the Gulf Stream, for want of a better word. The, the major ocean currents and seeing where these uh, destabilizing systems are headed and what's, what kind of date can we look at there. And from all, all my studies, I'm, basically the, the, the best fit is sort of the, the middle years of this century. So we're talking 2050 plus or minus 
10 or 15 years. If you if you look at that date and then work backwards and, and figure out how where the investment should be going to prevent to sort of postpone that de- that uh, that tipping, that that moment of um, breakdown, uh, and then working out how best or at least the actual value of the investments we're making in postpone in postponing it, and that requires a very different way of calculating the benefits and costs and their relationship. Uh, in in terms of all our investments, so what I'm advocating is a uh, a transparent and consistent way of comparing investments by their effectiveness in postponing the biosphere-wide tipping point. And that would be a very good way of selling it to the people who have the money to make those investments work, would be to show the clarity that you're talking about, about the value of those investments. So long as everyone agrees, and that's the problem, isn't it? We still have to carry everyone on this journey. So when you're talking about uh, you know, these tipping points being reached in the middle of this century, give or take, you know, which is only really 25, 26 years away, and then you said uh, give or take 10 or 15 years, <laughs> that's like 10 years, <laughs> possibly 10 years away. So we get this uh, this idea that there's this looming catastrophe, which some people will find hard to take because we've also got in our mind that this is all a linear process. So it's scientists who talk about tipping points and how in a complex system, one tipping point might lead to another tipping point, And then so the whole system accelerates. But in our minds, we're thinking this is a linear process. And because the Earth has done such a good job of absorbing what we've done so far, we assume that that linear process is going to carry on. We almost have to make sure everyone understands science before we can start to get this message across. Yeah, well, the science is is evolving quite rapidly. The the tipping point certainties are falling into place basically after 2022, which is a bit too late to be included in the last IPCC Report. You know, the IPCC reports come out every few years, and they're they're always a little, somewhat out of date. Uh, but then that's what the governments, uh, the, well, the governments read the summaries of those, and so they end up with a kind of pottyish thing, which they don't quite understand usually, and so it goes. So everything is is uh, is slow, slow, and behind the times. Um, what's needed really is for leadership and you know clarity of of leadership um, by a few critical players, actors, uh, both governments and the IPCC secretariat itself, and maybe institutions like the World Bank to say, look, okay, regardless of public opinion, this is is what the danger is, and we really have to act. And what we need to do is is clarify a simple, uh, doable way of comparing investments according to their actual, their true mitigation effectiveness. So... At a stroke, you can sort of, if you look at a country's entire uh, strategy for comply for contributing to the Paris Agreement goals, uh, people at the moment are investing all over the place uh, in whatever seems, you know, easiest or most uh, rewarding, for uh, in financial terms or political terms, but not examining it, uh, the investments in um, whether they make sense in terms of actual mitigation effectiveness. But, but isn't, isn't that, Julian, the point that you've got to somehow find a way of making the rewards of it in terms of, as you say, its effectiveness and rewards financially almost tie in together or at least convince the, the big money that that is what is happening? Well, the way, the way I see it, the, if a credible actor like the World Bank were to say, OK, 
we can we could we could do this calculation and we think that uh, investments that are uh, highly cost effective in terms of dated mitigation value that is having taken into account uh, approaching tipping points uh, these things should be a gold standard and should be worth more in the market than other people's investments that are, are much less which are much much softer in terms of their effect that that leadership statement ought to encourage the markets very swiftly to seek out uh, the best justified investments. Uh, the calculations to, to 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 do all this actually are really quite simple. I've published the uh, how to do it. Um, yeah, we want to essentially attract the the big money into things that work best. But are they are they things that are? I mean, there might be things which are going to be good for the planet. But are they things that are going to provide? the financial returns for what people are investing in it. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? We, we you know, we're, we're running a capitalist system that is based on return on investment. Indeed. I mean, mitigation strategies uh, contain a whole range of different kinds of investment, some of which are very attractive to private sector investors. And renewable energy generation is the, is the major one there. Uh, that's actually what a lot of the COP28 attention has been going into is in terms of these commitments to triple renewable energy generation. But beyond that, there's, if you generate, generate lots of renewable energy, you've got problems with it being able to integrate it within the national grid uh, and building the capacity to manage those sort of uh, innovative energy systems. Those are things that the private sector cannot really invest in. They're things that the, private, the public sector needs to invest in. So... And likewise, uh, so the, you know, the renewable energy transitions requires a sort of partnership, a much more active partnership between public and private in order to make them both profitable and effective in mitigation. But but you will need that private element because that is where the, the, the big money is in terms of, of investment, investable capital. Absolutely. You're going to have to get them on board, aren't you? Well, absolutely. And, and in, in the renewable energy sector, they are very much on board. They, uh, there's a massive investment going to renewable energy generation. The problem is that uh, is that absor- absorbing uh, fluctuating amounts of renewable energy in a national grid is an extremely difficult thing to, to manage. And few countries, um, you know, Denmark and Scotland among them, are able to, um, to provide the expertise necessary to do that. The point is that there are a lot of other things that the private sector cannot, ca- cannot invest in that are also required for... Yeah. And it's the coordination oh. element as well, isn't it? So, I mean, I was uh, chairing a, a, a session in, in Europe with a, a bunch of different uh, suppliers in the renewables industry, and they all had different approaches for how they were helping to tackle climate change. But they were doing it, for, you know, for, for profit. They were all commercial organisations. And I raised the question, which no one had an answer to. I said, so you are all doing your bit. You know, you're all making money and you're helping the climate. But what happens if collectively all the efforts of everybody who's in this in this game only actually gets us to 40% of where we need to be? Uh, how will we know what the, you know, where we are in terms of reaching the, the target? And who fills up the other 60% if it's not commercially viable for you to do that? And all they could say was, well, yes, that needs to be government coordination, but we're not really seeing that. And that's that. That's the issue, isn't it? It's it's it's. We might be doing a lot, but are we doing enough? And how do we know? And what do we do if we don't get far yeah. enough? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think I've just been hearing on the COVID inquiry in the telly about uh, the primary duty of governments to safeguard the lives of the of of the people. Right. 
Uh, but you also will have picked up at that COVID inquiry. They're not very good at that, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yes. Well, you know, all we can do is is say what needs to be done and say what can, what the private and public sector can and can't do respectively, and urge the governments and therefore the people who vote for those governments to demand that the government does make up the difference. It, it, it's going to have to, in, both in terms of much smarter coordination, uh, much better leadership in terms of uh, directing investments, of a public investment and private investment to the most cost-effective solutions. So, you know, my studies show that you can, you know, you can spend a billion dollars or $40 billion on mitigation in a place, um, and they have the same effect in postponing the um, biosphere breakdown, depending on um, on what strategy you're using, whether it's protect, avoided deforestation or renewable energy investment, whatever. So there's enormous cost savings available in this, strat- in this process. Um, so I'd say the government obviously needs to stop avoiding response, stop dodging responsibility for this stuff and pretending that it can all be done by the private sector. The problem in it, surely, is that, yes, you know, that that, that, that is a, a way forward of, you know, the government has to be involved. We have to have state thing involvement. But unless you can convince them that because governments are necessarily short term in their outlook. So in a way that, you know, in a, in a democracy like ours, every five years or so, and they won't to take that longer term look as to what the best outcome is for the people is a very difficult thing for them to do. And it's almost easier for long term investments from capital investors because they do have the long term in view. It's possible, although I must say that the they're they're. There are some governments that have taken a sort of 30-year perspective. Um, both uh, U- the UK has had a 30-year cross-party um, consensus on net zero or mitigation strategy, which has broken down recently, but it took a long time, 30 years. Uh, Costa Rica for, uh, has also had a very long-term perspective. So governments can do this, uh, provided you've got some kind of consensus based in public understanding of what's necessary to provide a kind of continuity of support. But you're right that it is a demand, but uh, or at least a challenge, a challenge for governments. Um, on the other hand, we're not talking about ultra long term at the moment um, anymore. I'm afraid the future is looking increasingly bounded, as you as you said, by a sort of 20, 20 30 year horizon. And that's that's realistic. We need just to, if you know, government economists are quite capable of using, using that kind of thinking. Uh, the Treasury is capable of doing its calculations based on uh, a bounded economic future and the sense that some things have to be avoided at whatever cost, including the destruction of the entire biosphere. You know, it's worth, it's a, it is of infinite value and therefore any cost is justified, really. But right. Uh, but but the, the problem with the finance industry, the way it's structured is it is all, it's it's built for growth, isn't it? And it's, uh, so it's it's good at taking us from where we are now, the status quo and looking at the opportunity. So looking at renewable energy and saying, well, that's, you know, we can make money out of this and we're going to have government support to take us down that road as well. So let's invest in all of that. But there'll be other areas where, you know, if you don't do anything, things will get worse. And companies and governments are not particularly good at that. And saying, well, okay, uh, you know, the, the the value of the investments you've made so far are going to be devalued, perhaps catastrophically, by climate change. So you've got to do something which may not provide a return, but it's going to stop you losing a great deal of money as a consequence out of all of this. 
we're not very good at that side of things. We're very good at the growth side in the finance industry, not very good at looking at, you know, how things can turn south very quickly. The frustrating thing is that a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of work's been done on strand, the stranding of assets, including by my son, actually, is uh, did his, his fill on that. Uh, mm. the, the idea that if we were to get serious about um, mitigating climate change, including phasing out fossil fuels and all the other and, and, and preventing long-term uh, carbon bomb investments that commit countries to long-term emissions. If we got serious about that, then the then the companies that held carbon assets might, would would be vulnerable to the stranding of those assets and they become they might become worthless very quickly. And so there's a kind of almost a conspiracy to or there are concerted efforts by the holders of fossil assets to prevent any serious action on, on on mitigation, which is frustrating because actually what they should be doing is what we all should be doing, uh, in both governments and, and fossil fuel companies, is working out how to how realistically to make these these changes and how to alter uh, the portfolios of of the investors so that they both make a make a significant profit but also contribute to the solution to to these things rather than just try and stop it try and stop it happening, which is what's happening now. So that would include those 2,500 people who registered for COP who come from the uh, coal, oil and gas industries, uh, perhaps a little bit as well. But, I mean, that's that's the it, that's the issue, isn't it? It's, it's partially education and it's partially self-interest. And we don't seem to be making much headway on either of those two things. I know. Uh, and the weak, the weak link there is, I think, in sort of leadership, uh, the kind of bravery to, to lead people where we have to go. I mean, subject to uh, a realistic understanding of what the world, of how the world works and how it currently is. Um, in terms of ecological reality, uh, leaving us, I mean, the, the human human concepts of values and, and, and the, 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 yes, value, you know, mitigation investment is all about but doing something and in the expectation of a reward in some kind of in some kind of currency, uh, you know, obviously the currency is frequently money, but um, you know, political support, public reassurance, you know, these are other forms of currency that other actors can respond to. And if you're a public sector actor, uh, i.e., government with the responsibility for the security and well-being of your People and other people uh, in elsewhere, um, then you should be making choices that result in uh, maximizing the returns of, of those sort of things. They're not particularly concerned. They shouldn't just be concerned with with money and tax rates and things of that sort, but should be much more concerned with the uh, more intangible um, and issues. Do you think, though, that we can actually solve this problem? And maybe we should look at, you know, that just explored slightly more that, that sense of urgency, what those tipping points actually are. But do you think, and we'll do that in a second, but do you think we can actually tackle this problem uh, and still maintain our standard of living or still see economic growth? Or or do we have to, and I know this is, you know, I know you're not an economist, but it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's perhaps a broad question for everybody. 
do we need to adapt the you know the the, the system that we are using is capitalism as it is you know do we need to go back to a it's like a more of a hybrid model which we sort of a lot of us who you know born in the 60s and 70s grew up with where we had more of a mixed economy do we need to sort of move back where the government does play a greater role than perhaps it does well, in this uh, day and age maybe mo- not moving back moving forward to yeah for, well yeah going back in time but moving forwards yeah. in yeah absolutely yeah the the, the global capitalist system sort of became mature in the post-war boom, I guess, from 1950 onwards, which is where we see the sudden rocketing of greenhouse gas uh, content in the atmosphere and, and that sort of thing, uh, but got a hypercharged or turbocharged with the, uh, you know, following about 1990. So it's been running very hot for, uh, for the last couple of decades, and that's really doing a lot of harm. So I think we certainly need to... Uh, urgently work out uh, or validate the idea of, of much more tightly regulating global capitalism in multiple dimensions just to bring it back in what sort of in what sort of way Julian will be able to do that, that would actually uh, Sorry, I don't have a list of potential regulation. <laughs> trash. But not, not potential, but, but the point being whether regulations are enforceable in a, in a system in which you have lots of different uh, jurisdictions, I guess. Each individual jurisdiction, of course, can um, needs to tighten up its act. But the, base, the basic principle that regulation is sensible regulation that com- is compliant with ecological reality is necessary and therefore valid. That's a principle that ought to be well, it is being propagated by the UN, uh, Antonio Guterres and people like that, but it ought to be kind of much more mainstreamed in the way in which all of the different actors and negotiations proceed. Everyone's sort of groping towards it. And of course, there's pushback and that and forth. But, you know, the whole international, uh, the, the very idea of, a, of a, the of the international um, uh, treaties on various aspects of climate change mitigation and adaptation, this is effectively a, a form of regulation. It's just... Uh, it's not particularly effective because it's international rather than national. So we need to kind of get more consistent messaging between the the national and the international uh, communities on this. Uh, you're right; it does require a bit of a, a bit of a rethink. There's a lot of um, a lot of people that think it's an extremely bad idea to to tinker with or constrain free, you know, the deregulated capitalism anyway. But uh, the problem is that the ecological story is sufficiently clear now that we kind of know that we have to we have to think in those terms and take and take action in those terms but is it is it clear enough for everybody so in your in your paper so you've written a paper called deadline aware mitigation investment uh, so preventing the onset of uh, you know this traditional transitional, I should say, chaos that we might find ourselves in. You, uh, you you say there's three influences that we need to have. There's, you talk about the, the public fear of climate change, which po- possibly isn't there enough currently. Public understanding of climate change, which definitely is not. And deadline awareness. So there's this sense of urgency. And I think, you know, that, that last one, even for those people who are with us on the first two, a lot of people will be saying, yes, you know, it's by the end of the century, things might be uh, might be pretty bad, but where you know I'll be long gone by then. So well, that, that's the point. You've got a, quite an aged population in some areas, particularly in the more wealthy countries, Julian. That that, that simply might think, well, what does it matter? We're not going to be there for the problem. And if and if the answer to all of this is you have to compromise your lifestyle in in some way, then obviously there's going to be 
reticence to that. But but it's but even aside from all of that, you know, the um, you talked about how you know by the middle of this century we're going to see tipping points. So that's like for example, you know, we and I think we all know some of those. You know that the the uh, the Arctic ice sheet in summer might just vanish totally. That there's the danger that perhaps the influence of the Gulf Stream, which you know we'd feel in the UK, might dissipate. I mean, how real are all of these things, and and can we actually stop them? Because that's the other side of all of this, isn't it? Where people go, well, it's probably too late. We, you know, we shouldn't be looking at mitigation. We should be just looking at how we, how we adapt to it all. In which case, we might as well continue using fossil fuels because that'll keep our houses warmer for cheaper. Hmm. The way I look at it, the uh, the the deadline is not that the world would suddenly cease to exist somehow on January the first, twenty fifty. It's that about then. Um, the situation will unfold such that we will no longer be able to uh, affect the outcome. So we'll kind of lose agency. We'll lose our hands. Will come off the, uh, the the controls. Or the analogy I think of is, you know, we've so far been walking up, walking towards the edge of a cliff. Up until we reach the edge, we've got control. We can always turn around and, and move away from the cliff edge. But if we step off the cliff edge, then we give up our agency and we let gravity take over. Likewise, if we let um, the the wheels come off the ecological systems that keep us alive, then we no longer no longer have agency. And in terms of the uh, the Arctic ice, I mean that's a particularly clear example now that uh, I'm getting you know anyway increasingly um, alarmed about is the I mean it's not a question of if there will be no summer uh, sea ice in the Arctic. It's a question of we know it will happen, but it's a question of is it going to be September 2027, 28, 29, or 30, or 31, where it's going, to cease, it's going to cease to be summer sea ice. And the big question then, apart from it's a minor doubt about the timing, is what the hell happens then? We know that you take the ice away and there will be rapid heating of the Arctic, but we have no clue about what that will do, mean in terms of methane emissions, for example, from um, seabed uh, frozen methane in the seabed and from surrounding permafrosts. Uh, and, you know, because a billion ton, there's, there's a trillion or two trillion tons of methane potential in the Arctic, uh, and only one billion tons of that in a year, given that it's 86 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is, even a billion tons would double our global greenhouse gas emissions, you know, in a year. Wow. So. You know, this all, all the, these these questions are then becoming rather urgent. I mean, this is not a, this is only the life. But, but they only they only get noticed. They only get noticed, Julian, for ordinary people. People you're talking about who need to be aware and to put the pressure on when things happen. Now we've had major, I suppose, what you call unusual severe weather events. That's probably the only way most people have actually experienced the outcomes of what we're talking about, and obviously in a fairly mild way, yeah. is the problem that until we get to the tipping point, people won't actually experience And it. the human condition, we, we can always just say, oh, these things have always happened. You know, mm. we might be having a bad spate of them now, but they've, they've always happened. It's not really a, a disaster as such. It is for the people involved. But in terms of planetary disaster, these things have been going on for as long as we've all been around. If, if what you say is true, that people will not do anything uh, until the wheels actually fall off, then I guess there's no hope. But uh, I put some some reliance on the ability of humans, human capacity of foresight and to anticipate, realistically anticipate what's happening. And I think 
two things going on. One is all over the world, people are um, rapidly realizing at some level the fact we've run out of global frontier and we need to settle down and and live at greater, uh, you know, at peace with nature, if you like. Um, the other is that this sort of the science, the, the understanding of tipping points is percolating out quite, you know, quite rapidly and over the next couple of years will be absorbed into the upper echelons of uh, thinking in many institutions and, and countries, or at least some key ones. Um, I'm hoping those two factors will contribute to work together in a sort of zeitgeist shift in the next couple of years. And and, and the boardrooms too, the, 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 and, and the big companies that look at this stuff in the long term, they have to, yeah. you know, if the boardrooms get convinced, then then we are in, in a better position. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the massive insurance and reinsurance boardrooms, company boardrooms are already very convinced. And they are... You know, insurance and reinsurance is a kind of foundational process in the capitalist system, and concerns there feed through both, you know, up and down into and sideways into other other groups. Um, the major bank regulators, Bank de France and and Bank of England, for example, Bank of Australia, are all kind of um, well introducing a greater tightening of the uh, fiduciary responsibilities of, of companies to pay attention to climate change signals. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of things are coming together, uh, but we haven't reached that critical moment of, if you like, a tipping point in the leadership of the world where serious new decision, new thinking can manifest itself. But I'm hopeful that in two or three years, perhaps COP32 or something, uh, or, or 30 or 30, 31, we might um, see a change. So that's, that would, that would, yeah, and that's when we when we start to see the BP share price nosediving because of all those the, those stranded assets because uh, yeah. of that op- well, optimism is still keeping those that you know that that industry alive. But just on just just on COP, I mean, does it achieve? Anything really? I, I'm looking at uh, the report out of this COP, and they've got two chapters: one on uh, one paragraph on mitigation, one on adaptation. Both those sections start with the same words. There is an urgent need, and I just wonder that next time it'll just be there's an even more <laughs> urgent need, and then you know the one after that. This, this issue has become more urgent than ever. Are they are they actually making any headway? And uh, and and or is it just a bit of a gab fest as people fly in on their private jets? And is it the right vehicle? Is there do we need something else with a smaller group of people, perhaps? But then you get into the whole, you know, well, the world's being controlled by a handful of people, uh, conspiracy theorists. I mean, it's I'm not quite sure how you handle something of this size for the entire planet without it becoming a political gab fest in which not very much is achieved. All of what yeah, all of what you say has aspects of, of truth and and not all wrapped up into it. I mean, clearly, uh, the, pro, the the COP process every year drives a a sort of rhythmic attention, paying attention to the issue in the media and and the NGOs and the governments. They have to they have to think and say something, and they're learning from each other. A major breakthrough. I mean, but breakthroughs only happen occasionally. You know. Any given cop is a preparation for for something that happens afterwards. Those add up. You know, the, the, the Paris cop in 2015 was a breakthrough in the sense that this whole idea of, of ex- an experimentalist approach to how to solve the problem was, was agreed so that all countries lo- were locked into a system of saying what they, what, they, what they think they can achieve, 
trying it out in their own way. Other com- reporting, other com- companies looking over, other countries are looking over their shoulder, comparing notes, uh, adjusting their own strategies. I mean, that is a very powerful tool, uh, and it will make a difference over time. Uh, and that's, I don't think there's been a, a, a breakthrough comparable to Paris since then. But as I say, I think the next big breakthrough is probably going to be in a couple of cops' time. We, we can when some of the other stuff. We can hope so. <laughs> it just seems at the moment yeah. uh, a bleak prospect, I have to say. But but you do have a little bit of optimism. That- Julian's got a great deal of optimism, and I'm so he's making me feel guilty for being sceptical about all of this. But 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 out of all of it, I, I feel like the the big question is: Do we have to compromise our lifestyle, and are we prepared to make that? Do you think we can get through this without compromising lifestyles, or do you think we need to adapt? Any solution that involves poor people being oppressed and dis, dis, um, what's the word dispossessed uh, and responsible for changing their lives uh, and letting the rich and the powerful off the hook is wrong. So uh, it's a question of um, a sort of fair and equitable distribution of cost of benefits. You know, taxing the rich is not is not the same kind of ob- objective as uh, taxing the poor. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's also an awful lot of uh, foolish uh, con- and, and dangerous overconsumption at all levels of of, the West, of Western societies and, well, you know, the globalised middle class society that we inhabit. A lot of that could be shed without any great loss of quality of life, to be honest. Um, I mean, the idea of international of international jet air travel, for example, is, you know, it's clearly it's time. Yeah, the the time has come for people to think much more seriously about is their journey really necessary and for the kind of pricing signals and uh, so forth that will help them, encourage them to do that. Uh, You know, the time has come for that sort of thing. Um, But that won't really affect most people most of the time, after all. It's great for holidays in Cornwall. It's one of those things where where the big big things perhaps need to be done externally, but we do need to have some adjustments and, to our lifestyle. And a bigger role for government in all of this, it sounds like, as well. Uh, Julian, we've, yes. we've just touched the surface. It sounds like the next couple of years is crucial. At Absolutely. least you're sounding optimistic that uh, education and awareness will drive that change somehow, even if we don't know exactly what uh, or how, but certainly a bigger role for government and... Uh, and finance and, fi- well. and finance, and we're going to have the right leaders in place who understand it all, which hopefully they will in a couple of years. Uh, good yeah. to talk, Julian. Indeed, great fun. Thanks a lot. Cheers. So we got a sense there, I guess, of where we're going in terms of the tipping points, but also the chances of not getting there. I suppose. Um, yeah. At least we well, hope we'll we see. don't. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, I would. I, I'm, I wish I could sound more optimistic. And, and, mm. Well, he, he was more optimistic than you. He was, um, but you know, but I look and I think government is going to be so much uh, a part of all of this. And then we just look at how we have been misgoverned the world over. I mean, it's not just a, a UK complaint. We had it with Donald mm. Trump, for example. I mean, what? Imagine Donald Trump uh, getting another term of office. What's he? Getting? He's not going to care. Let's not imagine. Let's not imagine. We're depressed enough happen. already. Mm. We will see. We will see. But something that is possibly going to happen. Uh, at least in terms of our government, is moving people to Rwanda. Uh, Mm. People who come in own small boats and aren't supposed to be here. Uh, The government assures us that this will happen, uh, possibly though, till not after the next election, which sceptics and cynics might say they might not even be there. Um, But nonetheless, it's a big part of current government policy uh, is sending people who have arrived and shouldn't have off to that country in Central Africa. A last-ditch effort. 
Isn't last it? ditch yeah. effort. And we thought, well, I mean, the, the big argument has been that the Supreme Court has said it is not a safe place for people yeah. to go. So is so, it, is the question. Well, yeah. exactly. I mean, all this argument up and down, and now there's a treaty we've got and everything else. But actually, what is the situation there? How safe is it? If we send people there, how how are we going to ensure that their human rights are protected? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with Royal and for historical reasons and know that uh, it certainly hasn't always been the case that human rights are respected there. But anyway, well, we'll have a look changed. at that. Maybe it's changed, mm. Roger. Who knows? You know, it maybe may it's... have done. It may have done. We're going to find someone who will tell us. So that something utopia. Well, mm, yes, okay. (laughs) We'll think about that. Right, but anyway, that's what we'll come on to next week here on... The Wycap. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. The Y. Curve.